This week on Wealth Track, why accomplished global value investor Matthew McLennan has stocked up on gold in his first Eagle portfolios. I think it's it's really reflective of the fact that uh, gold is part of what I would refer to as the ballast portion of our portfolio. We own it as a potential hedge. Planning ahead for a sea change in financial markets this week on Consuelo Mac Wealth Track. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, Clearbridge Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. We have been living through an extraordinary period. It was a year ago that COVID was recognized as a global pandemic. And since then, over 100 million people have been stricken and more than 2 million have died. Economies were locked down, causing severe recessions. Central banks and governments responded with unprecedented amounts of monetary and fiscal stimulus. A worldwide effort by pharmaceutical companies to develop effective vaccines did so in record time. Millions are now in the process of being vaccinated. Equity markets suffered a short, severe correction early in 2020. In the U.S., the shortest bear market in its history and to varying degrees have been rebounding ever since. U.S. markets have reached new peaks. Global economies are also recovering, with China and the U.S. rebounding at a rapid pace. Well, is the worst behind us? Are world economies and markets on a sustained path of recovery, as many believe, or are there hidden risks? That is a concern of today's guest. He is Matthew McLennan, a noted global manager, head of the global value team at First Eagle Investment Management, where he oversees more than $100 billion in assets, including several funds. His flagship First Eagle Global and the First Eagle Overseas Funds, which he inherited from legendary value investor Jean-Marie Aviard in 2008, carry four-star ratings from Morningstar, as well as their silver medalist analyst rating. Each has outperformed both its index and category since inception. First Eagle is a sponsor of WealthTrack, but McLennan has been a WealthTrack guest for years because of his track record and, as Morningstar puts it, his unusual conservative approach. Long before the pandemic, McLennan had been monitoring emerging geopolitical and financial risks globally, which he says were exacerbated by COVID. I asked him to give us some specifics. We are focused on a number of different risks, and I think that the the pandemic has in some ways brought forward those risks, but they're being concealed by the market's enthusiasm right now for what many refer to as the great reflation trade. And indeed, it's true. When we look bottom up across many sectors of the economy, we're seeing signs of vibrancy, whether it's tightness in the semiconductor space, the, the strong demand for cloud equipment, or rising pricing trends in the insurance industry or you know, booming suburban construction ac- across a range of different fields, including factory and farm automation equipment, we are seeing signs of strength and business optimism has been strong. But I think one has to pause and reflect on the fact, what, what comes after uh, this boom in demand? Uh, is it correct that the, uh, the government should be administering such a large dose of fiscal stimulus to a patient that's already ostensibly self-healing? 
In, in the meantime, you know, you said that this reflation trade, the reopening boom, uh, it, it's for real, right? So we're talking about um, a, I mean, a substantial pickup in economic activity. As a, you know, a long-term investor, I mean, how much attention are you paying to what's going on short-term? And do you think that this reopening that we're seeing, and it's a global phenomenon, uh, has legs? Well, it's clear that we're going to see a period of strong demand growth. Uh, I mentioned the bottom-up organic healing process that's already happening in the economy, and we're about to administer another dose of fiscal stimulus. The question is, what's already priced in markets? The right. problem for markets is that credit spreads are now below where they were before COVID struck. Um, commodity prices are above where they were, whether you're talking about copper or oil or agricultural commodities. In fact, they're above their four or five year moving averages. And the stock market's already hit a new peak. In fact, it trades at a multiple of the trailing peak level of earnings that's well above where it was before COVID. And so uh, the market's already pricing in an anticipatory sense a period of strong growth. And so the issue for the markets is going to be as we go through this period of economic growth over the next uh, several quarters, what does the market start to turn its attention to as we look into 2022 and beyond? And there the picture is a lot fuzzier for us. So Matt, what do you think the market might start paying attention to once we're you know beyond uh, this kind of initial boom period that we seem to be uh, entering into? So the boom has really been fueled by unprecedented monetary and fiscal stimulus combined. And we see an outlook even into an economic recovery for a fiscal deficit that is a mid-teens percentage of GDP. The question is, how do we revert to more normal levels of monetary growth and more normal fiscal deficits once growth uh, recovers from its cyclical lows? The concern I have is that we're on a structural path towards a lower productivity growth world. We already had the mixed shift in the economy towards services, which is lower productivity growth than manufacturing. We have, as a second order consequence of COVID, a vast increase in the role that the government is playing in the economy. And the government is not the most productive actor uh, in the the economy. Uh, By virtue of low interest rates, uh, we see a range of zombie firms being kept alive. And on top of all of that, I think it's pretty clear that we're going to see an increasing uh, web of regulatory initiatives um, coming the way of the markets in coming years. And so if I add all of that up, demographics, uh, the mix shift to services, a bigger role for government, more complex regulation, um, it's my belief that when we get to 2022 and beyond, that the trend rate of growth in the US economy could be quite modest. It could be one, one and a half percent. That presents a huge headwind to policymakers. How do you tighten a 15% fiscal deficit back towards a more normal 2 or 3% without tipping the economy into recession. This is going to be a serial risk that policymakers have to face in coming years. And so all of that multiple re-rating we got from the stimulus could start to turn to multiple de-rating as the market digests those challenges in the years ahead. So in the meantime, we are seeing recovery and we're seeing you know, corporate profits, for instance. What's your outlook for corporate profits and the companies that you're invested in? Uh, you know, what are they telling you? Bottom up, uh, we're seeing encouraging signs. And so right. I would expect that this is going to be a pretty strong environment for corporate profits. Corporate profits peaked uh, back in 2018 and 2019 before COVID at around $150 a share for the S&P 500. 
the fact that the market's trading at closer to 4,000 today means that it's probably pricing closer to $200 of earnings power. And, and maybe that's possible. You know, if we've increased the monetary base by 25%, and if we have larger fiscal deficits, uh, and, and let me just highlight one point here, large fiscal deficits are good for corporate profit margins because what they do is they produce more income than would have otherwise existed for the private sector. Mm-hmm. So if we have this combination of a bigger nominal economy and wide fiscal deficits, you'd expect top-down corporate profits would be quite good. It's consistent with what we're hearing bottom-up. The problem is the markets may already be pricing a big chunk of this. So when you look at the companies that you're in, investing in, uh, you know, basically, how expensive are they? Because you're a value investor and you're looking for companies with you know, durable businesses. How difficult is it to find companies uh, that are good values? It's definitely been more challenging uh, in the recent month or two, given the level of markets. I would say towards the back end of last year, we saw more opportunities because the market was far more bifurcated. You had a small group of very hot concept stocks trading at generationally high levels of valuation. But since the, the vaccine news um, and since the, uh, we've started to see evidence of the case count of COVID going down, some of the more mature areas of the market have already started to recover as well. And so I, I would not describe this as a, uh, a very rich uh, backdrop in terms of the opportunity set. I think it's an environment where one has to adjust expectations um, to more uh, rational levels. I mean, after all, if the long-term rate of interest on a government bond is below 2% and the dividend yield on the equity market is below 2%, maybe we're just going to be in a low to mid-single-digit return world. I think we have at least the advantage of being able to selectively look at the market bottom-up and uh, identify businesses that have a character that we're comfortable with and be selective on when we commit capital to them. But you know, f- from my perspective, the goal in this kind of environment be d- should be to find companies that you think are priced for high single-digit returns uh, with resilient businesses. Um, this is not the kind of environment where you want to throw caution to the wind looking for the next double or triple. You, know, you mentioned that there's a reflation trade going on. Have you made any adjustments to your, the First Eagle portfolios and the Global Fund or the Overseas Fund that are uh, in, in recognition of the fact that, you know, the, that the cyclicals are coming back? So we've always had an all-weather portfolio philosophy. And so right. in some ways, the, you know, our resilience last year being down less than the market, but not up as much as a hot growth market, uh, and our sound performance this year has really reflected the fact that we've had this all-weather portfolio construction. We do have a range of investments in different industries that are well positioned to benefit from the mature economy reopening. And that would be across sectors that you would obviously think of, such as financials or energy or the like, but it would be more broadly distributed than that. Uh, We have a lot of investments in the real estate space, um, in the professional services arena, freight logistics and the like. All of these companies will benefit from the mature economy reopening. But we've also kept a, a foot in the new economy. Uh, you know, you know, for many years, we've been a holder of uh, a number of software companies that are benefiting from the cloud. Right, um, Oracle being one. And-, and, you know, we've had investments in the semiconductor space. Right. I think, I think the difference that in our portfolio from what you'd see in the market as a whole is that we apply quite a disciplined valuation filter. So we're not, uh, we're not exposed to the hottest areas in that market. And certainly you're not seeing us playing in SPACs or any other um, more speculative IPO activity. Um, The final thing I will say, though, is given the uncertainties that I mentioned to you before, 
we have a component of our portfolio um, that represents ballast, and and you know we, we've taken the opportunity while some of the higher quality staples have derated to to build some of our positions there. These are gr- grinded out cash flow generative businesses that may not have the most short-term elasticity to a recovery in the economy, but are soundly priced for the decade ahead. Are you finding more opportunities uh, for the kinds of companies that you're looking for at the right price uh, in overseas markets? It's probably a fair statement that the overseas market valuations are a little less demanding than what we've seen in the United States. In some ways, the overseas markets have had less uh, money supply growth and they've had less fiscal stimulus. And so perhaps there's been less reason for re-rating. But right. if you just look at the markets as a whole, I mean, the MSCI world is, is roughly two thirds US, but the US is only 5% of the world's population. And so um, you know, for us, uh, we've always tended to have a little bit more balance in the portfolio. Uh, we have seen a range of opportunities, not just within the United States, but outside the United States. And so we've selectively bought uh, into some positions in um, uh, Latin America, for example, very cash flow generative businesses um, that have been out of favor due to obviously um, issues relating to COVID, but uh, longer term that are stable um, quality businesses, for example, in the brewing industry. You know, we've seen opportunities in some of the holding companies uh, around the world that often incorporate a double discount. And so it's fair to say that uh, we've also uh, found opportunity from time to time in Japan, which has been a, a, an old favorite for us uh, right. in, in terms of finding good businesses with good balance sheets at reasonable prices. I think an example of a company like that would be one of the companies that we uh, added to during the crisis. And it's a good example of an eclectic uh, holding that we would have in our portfolio is a company like Hoshizaki. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a you know a world leader uh, in um, uh, ice making machines for restaurants and for uh, commercial cafeterias and the like. So you know the business environment was definitely definitely difficult for them, but they had right. net cash on the balance sheet. It's a company that's gradually growing its market share position. It's expanding its footprint in kitchens beyond ice makers uh, to commercial refrigerators and even the warm side in ovens and the like. And so this is a company that. Uh, has years of sustained growth ahead of it at a modest clip, but uh, it's it's visible. And uh, where we were able to add um, at a price that was undemanding relative to its capacity to generate uh, free cash flow in a more normal environment. And it's just an example of the kind of eclectic opportunities that exist in a market like Japan. Let me ask you about another kind of feature of uh, of your portfolios, and that's uh, your positions in gold and gold-related investments. And I know uh, in the Global Fund, I think bullion is your largest single position. And I think it's it's really reflective of the fact that uh, gold is part of what I would refer to as the ballast portion of our portfolio. We own it as a potential head. As we look forward, though, beyond this recovery, I mentioned to you that we, we have extremely limited policy space in front of us and that the potential solution to sovereign debt problems may entail a period of very low interest rates for a long period of time, particularly in real terms. And low real interest rates... And again, real terms versus nominal is when you take into account uh, inflation. That's exactly right, Consuelo. So for example, the 10-year bond yield has moved back up to about 1.6%. But if you look at long-term inflation expectations in the bond market where they're traded, they're north of 2%. So we still have a negative real interest rate. Uh, gold tends to serve as a, a sound potential hedge in a negative real interest rate environment. And if we think we're going to need negative real interest rates for quite some time to right the fiscal problems we have, 
gold serves as a potential hedge there. The second thing I would say is that the dollar uh, over the last decade has been strong. It went through a period of weakness uh, over the last year, but it's been a strong a little bit lately uh, with all of this mm -hmm. fiscal stimulus. But the, the dollar suffers from a bit of a problem. The rate of money supply growth is faster in the United States than it is internationally. We have trade deficits, whereas our main uh, trading counterparts, whether it's Europe, Japan or China, have trade surpluses. So we need to offer interest rate carry uh, to keep the currency stable. If we're going to be locked into a low real interest rate environment, that could present certain risks to the dollar long term. And so we view gold uh, still as a, a sound potential hedge against what could be the looming monetary mess uh, ahead of us. Frankly, uh, you know, gold has derated substantially relative to the value of risk assets. And, and, and I think you're likely to see it play a role in our portfolio, either until it's substantially above where it's cleared at its recent premiums, or stocks are, are trading substantially below their recent bear market levels, and we see the opportunity to deploy it in good businesses at good prices. And what about the dollar's position as a safe haven? It's the you know the place in times of trouble that people go to. What is uh, its position now, as far as that's concerned? We could be at a cuspy moment uh, in its positioning as as the world safe haven, mm -hmm. and I know that. Um, the dollar behaved as a safe haven uh, during the crisis in the first quarter yes. of, of uh, 2020 when we had COVID, it strengthened. Uh, but it's hard to retain safe haven status if you don't have credible fiscal and monetary policy long term. Another notable feature of, of your portfolios at First Eagle, again, the two mutual funds, uh, but let's talk about the First Eagle Global Fund in particular is your position in U.S. Treasuries is zero. I mean, that you're an outlier <laughs> in well, the world allocation <laughs> category. Uh, so, you know, so little faith in, uh, in U.S. Treasuries. And as a matter of fact, I think you have a minuscule uh, position in fixed income investments, uh, period. So we, we, we've chosen... Um, we do, you know, we do have close to 10% of our portfolio uh, in cash yes. and cash equivalents. And uh, I guess the way we've chosen to, uh, to invest that is that we, we have mostly non-financial industrial commercial paper, uh, which gives us a little yield uh, relative to um, T-bills. We have been willing to own T-bills, I, I, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I will state. Um, but we've been less enticed uh, by you know, extending duration into traditional uh, U.S. treasuries because, right. you know, when they were yielding below 1%, um, we saw less hedge value in the treasuries because they, they could only trade to 0%. And we saw more downside risk if yields were to back up uh, with the economy actually strengthening. And the more we sort of thought about it, the more we felt that we had the benefit of that potential hedge um, in owning gold. Um, as I mentioned before, Gold has a very tight inverse correlation with U.S. real interest rates. Uh -huh. um, yet the supply growth in gold is less than 2% a year, as opposed to the double-digit supply growth of dollars. And so for, for our money, you know, gold has traded like a tip, but with a better long-term drift rate to it in terms of its capital appreciation um, than a U.S. tip. And so we've, we've felt that gold, while vo more volatile in the short term, has been a safer place to be long-term to preserve purchasing power. Do you envision a precipitating event or a series of events that are going to cause a re-rating of the market, i.e. Uh, a correction 
from the you know current bull run that we've had? Look, the, the honest answer, Consuelo, is I have no idea. And, and if I did, I, I, I think uh, we'd be far more successful uh, than, than we have been at First Eagle. In market timing. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I, I can suggest a few things uh, yes. to reflect on here. I think the first thing is if this uh, period of economic robustness continues, within a year, um, we could have erased the output gap and financial conditions could start to feel much tighter much sooner than markets expect. We have this unique window in time where both Congress and the Fed are very focused on getting back to the full level of employment right. as quickly as possible. And the Fed has told you it will wait, not only until it sees that, but it sees inflation. And so um, markets tend not to like inflation. And if the Fed is seen as being perhaps behind the curve while the economy is running hot, um, you know that could bring um, some pressure to bear in currency markets. Mm-hmm. then that could lead to a feedback cycle, a sort of a stagflationary feeling in coming years, uh, like we saw perhaps in the 1970s. We're not saying that's the, the core scenario, but it's certainly a risk. And, and markets dislike stagflation uh, with a degree of abhorrence that's hard to imagine. You know, t- typically markets in those environments trade at less than half the multiples uh, than today's markets. I think the second thing is that uh, there are geopolitical challenges out there in the world. Uh, I think you know, uh, it's fair to say that uh, China tested American resolve on Hong Kong. Right. Will they test uh, America's resolve on Taiwan? I, I just don't know. But an event like that, that you would think of as a black swan event, um, could, you know, have ramifications for markets. And we've, you know, we've had a discussion today that's been very focused on the U.S. But what if China also has to slow its rate of monetary growth to deal with its excessive level of debt? That demand pulse that we've seen has not just come from uh, the United States, it's come from China. And the one final thing I'll say is when you look at business uh, corporate sentiment, Mm -hmm. uh, the ISM survey, for example, it's pretty close to generational highs. And so more often than not, something happens uh, (laughs) that takes sentiment back towards more normal levels. And the market tends to derate when that happens. And so we don't know what the specific catalyst will be that will take markets down, but it could be some combination of tighter financial conditions, the fear of getting into behind the curve uh, territory for policy and stagflation, a geopolitical event, or um, you know, it could simply be a series of regulatory shocks that uh, make business sentiment uh, moderate somewhat from its current high levels. And the point is you with your first Eagle portfolios are preparing for those possibilities now, as opposed to waiting, reacting when they happen. Yeah, absolutely right. We, we certainly want to make sure that we've battened down the hatches before the storm is visible on the horizon. Uh, and, 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 it, and it comes back to the comment I made before about being an all weather portfolio in construction. We want to have some businesses that will participate in the economic recovery, mm-hmm. but we want to also have some more stable businesses and, and some ballast, that potential hedge in, in gold, um, and so a little bit of cash for a rainy day. Matt, one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio. Is there anything that we should all own some of? You know, it's, a, it's an interesting time. I, I'd like to go back to uh, one of the important principles I tried to get across before, which is that we're in a moment where people have a fear of missing out. Right. So when, when you think of what's an appropriate investment right now, I'd focus on something that offers sound return potential rather than um, speculative or extraordinary return potential. And so um, 
you know, we're very focused on businesses that we, we see the, a line of sight to the ability to potentially generate high single digit returns through a combination of mid single digit free cash flow yields and um, the ability to grow at a measured pace over time. And, and, I'll, and I'll give you two for the price of one here. If you, look at, our, <laughs> if you look at our US uh, top 10 holdings, um, two names that would be in that list would be a name like Colgate, um, uh-huh. world leader in toothpaste with nearly 40% market share, or a company like C.H. Robinson, uh, which is um, the leading uh, uh, freight broker for trucking in the United States. Now, both of these companies will benefit from a stronger economy in one form or another but they don't need a really strong economy to persist. They're both very free cash flow generative. They both trade at reasonable multiples relative to their history. They both have the capacity to grow at a measured pace and they both have management teams that have distributed the free cash flow to shareholders over time. So seeking a sound and sustainable long-term return is often the best policy at a time where people have fear of missing out on extraordinary returns. All right, Matt McLennan, thanks so much for joining us as always from First Eagle. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on the show. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is a familiar one. It is own some gold for all the reasons McLennan has mentioned. Ballast in a portfolio during volatile times. Its historic role is a store of value. It's a hard asset in a world of intangibles and it is a non-correlated asset in most portfolios. All reasons to have some of the precious metal as part of your wealth preservation strategy. Well, next week in part two of our interview with Richard Bernstein, he shares his day trading antithesis, time-tested strategies for successful investing using long holding periods. In this week's extra feature, Matt McLennan will recommend two biographies of historical figures that are still relevant today. For those of you on social media, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thanks for watching. Have a happy Easter weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.